Friends and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined as always by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, tonight I feel like Ed Sullivan. We have a really big show. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of show, uh, it's been a while since we've done this. We, you know, we've been doing a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one talks, but we've got a panel today. Uh, we're going to talk a, a bit about uh, all kinds of wrestling history. But why don't you tell everybody who we got on the show with us? We have two very highly respected writers from the Pro Wrestling Stories website. The first one, he hails from Denver, Colorado, weighing, I don't know how much you weigh, Jim, but uh, <laughs> too much. Build from. <laughs> Parts unknown, weight unknown. So we have Jim Phillips, and we also have Javier Oist, who is basking in the glory of his Las Vegas Raiders uh, dynamic overtime victory. Yeah, we're we're beaming. We're we're super excited. I don't. We'll see if I can talk about wrestling because right now I'm, I'm thinking about football. But we're gonna, we're and, gonna and do I do have we'll, a go we'll at it. We'll defeat the Cincinnati Bengals on Sunday. Hopefully, we shall. <laughs> That's too funny. You know, uh, it's actually Benny. I want to correct you. You said we have two esteemed panelists from uh, Pro Wrestling Stories. What about what about you? Isn't that well? We have three? we actually have four, right? If we can't, yeah, well, that, that's true, true. But I'm. I just started writing recently, so. Well, I, I always tease Javier. Javier is the 1927 Yankees, and I'm the 1962 Mets. So I think I'm about 130 games out of first place. But I, I'm still in there, you know? I'm still fighting. I thought it was the Globetrotters and the Generals. Wasn't that oh, the that, other well, yeah. comparison? I'm, Javier, I'm old. I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, so, so what's the uh, what's the score right now? It's 157 to 8, something like that? Well, I'm, I'm at uh, 15 as far as posted. And I have a uh, few in the hopper. I think. Have you broken a hundred yet, Javier? You've got to be close. Um, be, not, because there are articles in as drafts right now, but post uh published ninety seven. Yeah. But uh, for you for when you hit no, one. But on, but it's all about uh, quality over or over quantity. Don't. Uh, that's what it is. If 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 you're gonna write one, two, three, just do your best, and that's 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 all that oh, matters. Yeah. Well, geez, Jim, oh, we've man. got the uh, we've got the main event. We've got the up and comer. I guess you and I were in the dark match ten minutes before the crowd got here. <laughs> That's all right. We'll get them popping. Well, you know, before we get into it, Benny. Speaking of wrestling, uh, we have a new Facebook page we want to plug, and it ties into our sponsor. Sponsor? Oh yes. Uh, so Dan and Benny in the Ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp. Founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful wife, Angel, BWC is situated in majestic, scenic Shawsville, Virginia. Whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, announcer, or valet, BWC is the place to be. At BWC, you receive the best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn hopes, bumps, psychology, promos, and much more. And the cost is only $250 down and $20 per session. Boogie's, Boogie's Wrestling Camp is, has turned out 29 graduating classes. And the most notable alumnus being AEW world champion, Hangman Adam Page. When you join BWC, you're not just joining a wrestling school, you're becoming a part of the family. Interested? Visit jimmyvaliant.weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp. BWC, the ring of dreams, where the dream becomes reality. And tell them Dan and Benny sent you. Yes, and for those interested, BWC, Boogie's Wrestling Camp is on Facebook. 
Uh, that page has been recently shared to Dan and Benny. And we uh, look forward to many more stories. And we'll definitely have to have Jimmy back on the show because that man can tell some stories. We brought everybody together today to to transition to the topic. We, we wanted to talk. Benny, this was kind of an idea you had bounced around of going back to territory wrestling. I know we've had so many voices in the last year. Uh, this is our 53rd episode now of guys who, who tell stories, guys and girls who tell stories of the territory days traveling from you know, Texas and, and up to New York and, and Minnesota. Uh, we had the voice of the AWA and, and some other things, people talking and Memphis and, and all these, these bits that we've had. And time and time again, championship wrestling from Florida keeps coming up. And we cannot, I, you've said it a hundred times on the show, you cannot talk about the territories without going into wrestling in Florida, which was one of the biggest uh, and popular territories of the time. And that's why we brought you guys here. So, so Jim, Javier, thank you for being here. We want to talk about championship wrestling in Florida. And we're going to start, Benny, uh, why don't you start? What, what are you thinking? Well, and I'll just share real quick. I was, you know, grew up in Long, Long Island, New York. I guess it was around 1978. Um, our cable carrier was cable vision and I was pretty much living on WWWF and I occasionally get the NWA Hollywood, uh, on a UF UHF channel. Uh, all of a sudden one day I see championship wrestling from Florida and this guy, Gordon Soley. And I was shocked and amazed at how different it was from New York wrestling, but how good it was and how great Gordon Soley was. So I guess my first question to both of you guys is, how did you find it, or how did it find you, CWF? Go ahead, Jim. Um, okay. So I kind of came into it a little bit later on. Growing up, I was around the St. Louis area, and we had, like, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Chicago, some of that stuff. So I never really had it as a kid growing up. But when the tape trading and the DVDs started to come along and you got access to a lot more of that older stuff – then I got really drawn into it because I wanted to see Dusty's early days and all these other great stars that came through that territory. So that's what really drew me into it was I was a little bit older. I wasn't a kid, but I still enjoyed it. So we are having a Dusty Rhodes uh, best impersonation contest tonight. So uh, Jim, <laughs> Jim, give me your take there. Oh, you want it right now? <laughs> well, let me tell you something, baby. I grew up around the St. Louis area with Sam Mutznick and the wrestling at the chase. And I didn't really have a lot of the championship from Florida, if you will. If you will. If you will. I had a chance to see the championship from Florida. I said, my God, this is the greatness, and it is in the stratosphere. So that is all from Florida, babies. I'll I just want to say it. one thing. I just love the way he said, God and Thole. You know, it was G-A-H-D-I-N-T-H-O-L-I-E, God and Zola. And he's dined with kings and queens and what was it? Slept in alley and ate pork and beans, baby. Dined with kings and queens. Yeah, it's like bebe. And slept in alleys and ate on pork and beans. Yes, babies. Oh, that's just great stuff. Dusty was unique. Dusty was a unique, unique, unique. Javier, you've told your story before. How did you find CWF? Well, I found CWF in the uh, in the late in late '85. I was a big Dukes of Hazard fan. My parents weren't; they wanted to watch Dallas, and uh, or any any in or those kind of shows that I was totally not interested in. 
So they had a surprise for me one one evening. They said, "Come up to your room. Like we got we got want to show you something." And I go up, and there's this uh, TV there. And like, look, you got your own television now. You can watch Dukes of Hazard while we we're downstairs watching Dallas or anything we want. And you can be up here and you can watch anything you want. I turned the TV on. It's little. I don't know what is that like a uh, twelve inch. Uh, Was it like TV a twelve inch Hitachi? Like one of those deals? I wish I remember the brand, but all I what I do absolutely remember when I turned it on, it was black and white, green and gray, no color, no black color. And and I'm, just, I'm just looking at it. It was more like a greenish gray. It must have they bought it used or something. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh no. And as a as a six year old kid, how you can't watch TV like that. It's it's hard. You're used to you want color, right? But then I see this UHF dial on the bottom. I start clicking, clacking, click, clack, click. Every 20 channels, something would pop up, something would come up, and all of a sudden I see wrestling. And I was familiar with the WWF product, but then I saw Florida, and it was just something, even in black and white, I felt like it was in color. It was just different. It was, there was a, uh, it was kind of out there, but there was a, a serious tone with Gordon Soley. So he was like the counterbalance with like, uh, you know, Kevin Sullivan and, and the Army of Darkness. And you had Gordon Soley, which any there could be craziness on the screen, but Gordon Soley would act like you're watching anything that he's narrating is important. It could be like a, a red ant and a black ant on the sidewalk. But if Gordon Soley is narrating it, you're going to watch. It's important. So I would start watching Florida, you know, championship championship wrestling from Florida. I really was hooked because it was just a different it, it was a different feel from the TV product of the WWF. I'm not saying it looked cheap because it didn't. For the time the production values were very high and I could tell that as a kid where they where they they put a lot of work in the in the in the production but uh that's how I started watching it. And later on uh I started watching I started catching up on what I didn't see on these DVDs uh Mike Graham released. He would be on the dock or on a boat in the in the in the Tampa Bay and talking about how beautiful Florida was. And he'd give a brief introduction of the matches he would start watching. He would show early 80s stuff, you know, late 70s or even back to the late 60s. These are these are these are the DVDs from from the archives of Florida of championship wrestling from Florida. And you can still get those pretty cheap on Amazon. And unfortunately, Mike, Mike Graham is, is gone as well. Yeah. We, you know, you bring up a good point. Javier. And the big, and the big, the biggest thing was Kevin Sullivan and and, and and superstar Billy Graham just stretched out. They had him like in some kind of crucifix out in the desert and the buzzers. Oh my were, god! The Break the chains that bind me. That actually was my favorite. Pro- that's my favorite yeah. promo of all time. Really? Oh, every, yeah. every now Absolutely. and then I go back and watch that. I, I think that's it's amazing. Unbelievably great. A lot of wrestling purists just hate hate the Army of Darkness and those kind of angles. Um, even now I'm in my, I'm 43 and I think it's great to watch that. It's, it's gritty. It's, it's, there's a realism to it. And, uh, you just feel, you just feel like they, they don't like each other. I I love that. You bring up a good point, Javier. You talk about how it was different, but it never felt, I don't want to say worse. It never felt cheap. It never looked, uh, like the, 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 in, uh, indie productions, you know, um, I, I mean, I've seen Benny, you, you, we've talked about it before. There were some of the shows that ran and you might have fans on one side and then literally a painted crowd. 
you know, it's obviously a studio that, that you'd film a high school play in kind of set up. It never it never felt like that. It always felt like a big deal. And it was always different. It was always real. And I want to transition that. Jim, you wrote a story on the CWF where one of the things you focused on was they had a bare knuckle championship. Yes. And and, and I wanted to, you to expand on that a little bit because uh, I'll be, I mean, your, your story also talked about tag team wrestling and, and Cowboy Luttrell and a lot of stuff. But really, I want to go with because Javier talked about how it had that gritty realism. I mean, you're literally having a bare knuckle championship. You get that image of two guys just beating the living in living bejeebs out of each other. And I was really hoping you could kind of expand on that. Well, it was the hardcore title before there was a hardcore title. It went out into the parking lot. I remember watching Black Jack Mulligan fight out into the parking lot. Exactly. Like, especially down there, the believability of the product was there because these guys were larger than life. And they were just, they were all over the state all the time. So you would see them on a regular basis. And it was one of those titles that was a lesser title underneath the main Florida heavyweight championship that was, there was so many people there and there was such a roster that they needed more titles to expand so where they could, you know, be marquee guys more across the state. But that brass knuckles title, sometimes they literally fought with the brass knuckles, but a lot of times it was played up and it, it might be a, a light punch here and there, but it was more or less any, any falls, falls count anywhere all that stuff, anything goes. And the fans were so into the product that it just made it that much better. But it was just like, whenever you won that title, you were like legitimized as a badass in that area. You know what I mean? Jim, I think uh, I looked at the, the title history really quick. Uh, it looked like Boris Malenko won it more than anybody. And I think that's he's one of those heels that I don't think he gets his just due. Um, can you talk a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think he's very underrated, but in his day, he was a feared, you know, hated heel. Can you talk a little bit about him? Well, yeah, Javier called it the professor. He was, <laughs> he uh, famously would taunt with the crowd and was just over, just, he would come to the ring and just, uh, it, was, it was brutality, you know what I mean? And then, uh, like, <clears throat> put me on point with Malenko. <sighs> It was really good stuff, and uh, man, I don't know what to say about it. To be honest with you, he remember, was, uh, remember, do you recall his uh, when he lost it when uh, Eddie Graham uh, smashed his uh, teeth? He stomped on his teeth. Is one of the famous angles in Florida, right? Right. Where uh, Ed, uh, Malenko, he was biting Sam Steamboat and, and drawing blood. This was like the mid seventies, and and Eddie Graham is he goes next to uh, Gordon Soley. And tells him this has gone too far. I got I got to do something about this. So he goes in the ring and and starts beating on uh, Boris Malenko and just knocks his uh, false teeth out and then just stomps on him. That's one of the one, one oh, of the funniest. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he means literally knocked his teeth out. Locked, knocked right. his real, locked his teeth out and broke him <laughs> and stomped yeah. on him. Yeah. What, was there ever a Boris Malenko match without color? I don't know if I've ever seen a picture of him that where he's not bleeding. It's it's unfortunate there's not too much uh, um, too many pictures or too many matches with them unless I'm I'm not sure if the the, the network has a lot of them do, do do you guys know because on YouTube there aren't there isn't too much uh, I'm, I have a hard time finding anything on him yeah. anywhere he was, was kind of like the chic 
for that territory. You know what I mean? He had that that feel about him, like you never knew for sure what he was going to do. He was a little out there. Yeah, he was big in like the '60s and 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 up to like the early '70s until like '74, right? And then I, I think he got blackballed or something by the NWA. And uh, but in Florida, he drew. Yeah, you know, absolutely. definitely, definitely. So Javier did uh, a, another story on Pro Wrestling Stories about the Grams, and I, I Eddie Graham to me another person who doesn't get his just due. When you talk about the history of wrestling, what, what Eddie Graham did for the business, both as a wrestler and as a uh, a promoter afterwards. So, uh, if you, and uh, you know, if you talk a little bit about Eddie and and Mike Graham. Well, Eddie Graham, uh, uh, Eddie Gossett, originally from Chat, he uh, grew up close to Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was part of the famed uh, Graham brothers or the Golden Grams with Dr. Jerry. Eddie Graham and then superstar Billy Graham uh, joined them, but it was it was basically uh, Doctor Jerry Graham and Eddie in the in the fifties. Right? Crazy Luke. Uh, yeah, later on, yeah. Yeah, and and this was in the uh, Luke Crazy Luke, Luke came Moore, a little bit after, right? Yeah, a little bit after, and he was he became more of a solo solo act later on. But Eddie and Jerry were the ones in the fifties and 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 uh, mostly the fifties, and uh, up in the Northeast. They fought like the who was it Anton Anton Argentina Rocca and uh, Miguel and, Perez, uh, Miguel Perez yes. and and they and uh, Mark Lewin and um, the Kangaroos and the Bastine brothers the ba- the, the the Kangaroos the Bastine brothers that that was Lou Klein and um, Red Bastine but uh, it got so dangerous to the point when he was a heel. He would take his family, his wife and his and his and his young son, Mike, to some of the shows and they would get attacked by fans in the car, uh, going to their car, you know, outside the arenas. So quickly in the early 60s, he became a baby face when he went down to Florida. He went down in like the, in 1960, right, Jim? 60, 61. He went back to Florida. Yeah. And uh, and he started and that's where he uh, started helping out uh, Cowboy Luttrell because it was his his territory in Florida. And he went full on as a majority owner in 71 in Florida. And he would use what he learned from Cowboy Luttrell and to, to really lift the uh, the Florida territory to, I would, I would call it, to its zenith in popularity. You got to remember that in Florida, they didn't have any pro teams until 1976 when Tampa Bay Buccaneers Bucks, yeah. showed up. Before that, Tampa Bay, Tampa area was not Tampa St. Petersburg was not what 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 it is now where, you know, it's 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 a there's there's things to do. There's a, it's oh, a, yeah. like a small metropolis there back in the mid 70s and earlier. Uh, there there wasn't wasn't too much to do. So yeah. so pro wrestling was a big deal in the uh, the famed Tampa Sportatorium, which was. It was painted as bigger than life on TV, but Benny and, and uh, Dan have seen that it was it was a two story uh, stucco tan building. It looked like a doctor's office from there. It, it was, was about, like a hundred people. It was a, a little right. bit over a hundred people in the studio. The offices were upstairs, and in the back you had the uh, the snake pit. You know, we're here Matsuda and the Briscoes and Mike Graham broke in the boys. You know. So yeah. you, you you could drive past that today. I think the building's still there, and you would have never imagined that that was the um, the mecca of Florida wrestling. You know, 
Tampa was the office and it would expand to, you know, Jacksonville, Miami, uh, West Palm. And that was the whole, those were all the cities, right? I think they had wrestling almost every night in the Florida circuit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I did a little bit of research. Twice on Sundays? They did, yeah, they did Mondays in West Palm, if I have this right. Tuesday was Tampa at the, uh, was it the Homer Hesterly Auditorium, I believe? Yeah, Fort Homer Hesterly. Yes, and then Wednesday, Wednesday, Miami, Thursday, Jacksonville, Friday, Fort Lauderdale. And then they did uh, spot shows on the weekend. They usually, you know, hit Orlando. But, you know, I mean, how great. I mean, I live. Imagine wrestling on Mondays and Tuesdays, you know, and and, and filling, filling the venues. That that yep. that's that would be very difficult nowadays. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, those aren't really days, evenings people go out, you know, and people are filling those places up watching wrestling, you know, just well, like in uh, Memphis, you know. And, right. I was just gonna say, you know, the, yeah. in Memphis, the Mid South Coliseum on Monday nights, Tampa was the 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 Hesterly on Tuesday nights. But I mean, m- my point of view is, how great was it to be a fan in Tampa growing up at that time when you you could you know if you had the time, you could see the matches every every week. Yeah, you and could that, I think is dusty around <laughs> to every yeah. different venue. If you wheel, right? if you yeah, well, wheel, <laughs> that's the that's that's really what was most impressive about it all. And Javier, you mentioned Memphis is it's not just the fact that it was every week. You had a period from the 60s through the early 80s when when things started going a little weaker was I mean, imagine now I look at. Like I'm here in Norfolk, Virginia. We had uh, AEW and WWE come through in the last month or two, and the AEW show was packed. The SmackDown that was here was uh, I don't know half, maybe three quarters, somewhere in there. You know, here's WWF or excuse me, WWE hasn't been in Norfolk in two years, and they couldn't sell out a show. Imagine the same city every week for 20 years, and your the- your theater, your auditorium, where you are is packed. And now, granted, by packed, you're talking, you know, the biggest venue they went to was about 3,000 people. But still, that's that is is the dedication of the fans, the popularity. And a lot of that came from, like Benny was saying, it was the traveling talent. You knew when they were going to be there, where they were going to be. And it kind of created that atmosphere. And well, plus, I really go ahead. You got to put yourself in those times. There was an on-demand pay-per-view services every time you click your television remote, you know what I mean, to a different channel. People went out, they did things. Like Javier said, there were sports teams. You went out to the, the movies were big back then more than, I think more than they are now going to the movies. But you went out to see this stuff. And you did know that when it came around to your town this week, hey, man, let's go out and see wrestling next week. You know what I mean? And it didn't matter what night of the week it was going to be. It was a reason to get out and go do something and go have fun and go have a good time, raise a little hell. And they come to your town. And for that one night, that was your show. You know what I mean? And that's another reason that guys were able to get over so big down there because they did have shows all over in Florida. I come from a truck driver. Florida is a huge state. And the fact that they were like positioned in Tampa gave them the ability to be four hours from everywhere. If they would have been positioned up by Daytona, man, Daytona to Miami, that's an eight hour ride. Right. You know what I mean? So six hours if you're riding with Harley Race. Exactly. Yeah. I was about to say that. <laughs> you read my mind. Unless, unless he gets pulled over. <laughs> Not for Harley. <laughs> but there's 85 but yeah, beer the, cans in the car. The centrality of where the promotion was located <laughs> really helped. But it was before there was something to do sitting in your living room. You know what I mean? All the possibilities that we have now 
Well, so let me I ask a question to both of you real quick. Um, as far as, like, from the wrestler's perspective, you know, was that a – and it seems like it was because, I mean, just about everybody wound up there. But wasn't it – and based on what you just said, Jim, wasn't it a desirable territory for a wrestler to be in just because of the limited travel as opposed to a Mid-South where, you know, you're going through a new car every year? Well, you hear about the the, the territories, the, the worst travel territories that you hear about are Mid-South, AWA – and then you would think Florida, but it's not that bad. One of the reasons that guys went to Florida is the, it says it, right? The Sunshine State. You know what I mean? It's it's nice all the time. You know they're going to be able to – the territory's hot. They're going to be able to hit all these different shots. They can rotate guys around just because they got one crew making good money in Miami down here doesn't mean that they can't – have the crew that's in Daytona switch places with them and kind of rotate people, which is another good reason to have this variety of titles and different championships that they had. It was, it was draws. You know what I mean? It was Graham knew what he was doing. He knew how to heat the area up and he got invested with the local community, the armories that, I mean, he was smart, smart man. He did a lot with like local, like charities and things like that. I, I heard. Yeah, he was highly vested in his community. Yeah, I'm sorry, Javier. I didn't mean to step on you. No, no, just amateur wrestling, too. Yeah, I just wanted to add that. He he, uh, he, he raised a lot of money with that, yeah. Yeah. No, and and, and Jim hit it right on the head. I mean, if you're out of the 50 states and you're you're a wrestler and and they say, come down to Florida, work six months. First of all, you you know, the pay was what I understand decent. Maybe not the top pay, but it wasn't the bottom, like – what was the guy uh, that always comes up with the with the bad pay? Um, Jared, wasn't it? No, not Jared, but the other guy. The other Goulas? guy, Nick Goulas, right? Yeah, yeah, Goulas, Goulas. right? Goulas in Nashville. <laughs> but you're in Florida, you know the 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 state is big, but it's not it's not like a like a Texas, for example, you know, like not like the mid south in Oklahoma. You mm-hmm. got the beach right there. So Florida was definitely definitely desirable, and 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 Eddie Graham knew what he was doing. You know, no shortage so, of young ladies in bikinis. Well, that that's yeah. that's uh, we're talking about wrestlers. Ab- absolutely, right, yeah. exactly. You yeah. know, it's funny being associated with some of the some of the girls in Florida because you talked about his Eddie Graham's connection to the community. It was actually the girls' ranch via uh, and the Florida boys, the Florida boys yeah, and girls' Sarah. ranch villa was yeah. was his. That was his primary charity, and it was every show from the day he took over until the very end. And uh, I'd rather not go into the, the dark times at the end of his life uh, that he donated money. Uh, this, I think the, the reports uh, upwards of a hundred thousand dollars by the time all was said and done, which was a lot of money back then. And I, I was hoping actually, if, if I could get your guys' thoughts on something that is unique, the story that pops up a lot when people talk about uh, Eddie Graham is not, before his time in running the company, when he was still a wrestler, he was part of a very unique incident. And I'm sure you guys know the story where he was in the locker room. He was getting ready for a match. Uh, I think they said he was putting his boots on or something. And a window in the building, a steel frame window fell out and, and landed on him. And it was that, 300 that, that was stitches. The, uh, armory in the armory, Port Hesserly Armory. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It was 300 stitches. It detached both his retinas, affected his eyesight. And he ended up settling with the sit with the state legislature and got a bunch of stuff. But but it was it was that kind of moment. I want to 
think about that for a second. And here's a guy, I mean, half an inch either way, you know, when when you're talking about something that gives you 300 stitches, that could have been it. So there was a hundred pound window frame and it was still dedicated, put, put him, pulled himself up. I mean, a guy that would for the rest of his life suffered from little, little side effects of that and did all the good things yet time and time again. And I, the gym, you've mentioned it in articles, Javier, Benny, you hear stories about promoters and it's always, yes, they did great things with the business, but you know, uh, this guy was a, was a, a drunk. This guy was a bad person. This, you know, they were crooks, cheats. You always hear horror stories about you know, the the ruthless business. I mean, even today, people acknowledge Vince McMahon, you know, the most successful promoter in history, and no one really has much good to say about him as a person. Yet, I you look it up and you continue to research it, and other than kind of the uh, the dark times at the end you really don't hear people criticize eddie graham as a person he was respected as a mind and as a good human being well one of i think just one one of the things uh you know unfortunately people don't know uh i think a lot of people do but he did he committed suicide and uh the the story is they think that it was probably some kind of um he was he was conned out of some kind of a business deal for a lot of money, and it, it had to do with land. And it's something that he didn't want want to get out that for 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 that to get out in the public because he would be ashamed for for his family, et cetera, et cetera. He he just could not bear it. All this is these are there's nothing proven of what happened. There's different theories, but that goes back to your point, Dan, that he was someone who was respected in the community. And and something like this, whether he got involved with someone who was crooked or conned him or they were he didn't know he was involved in something that he shouldn't have something like that. And he didn't he could not face that. And and he decided to take his life over over having something over over that and his family. But he wasn't just respected by I mean, he was respected by the community, but he was also respected by his peers as well. Wasn't he the, um, the NWA president for a bit? Yeah, twice. It was in a. It was like in a two-year span, but it was it was two. It's considered two. Uh, two twice. Rains. Yeah. Two. Uh, I was gonna use the word range, but terms. I, I guess terms, is probably yeah. a better word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He he was a t. He was a two-time champ. Two um, times. <laughs> He he knew he knew how to play the political game, but he was respected by the by his fellow NWA uh, owners and promoters and members to to be the president of the of the whole thing. I mean that that, that speaks for something, you know. Right. You know he was he was super very successful as a wrestler, as a promoter in Florida, uh, as NWA uh, president. I've never heard of him uh, being some kind of a you know cheapskate who wouldn't pay his wrestlers or he would try to you know trick people. So that's that's. You're never going to be able to make everyone happy anywhere. And I'm sure there's stories out there where someone has a story where Eddie Graham might have rubbed him the wrong way. But by and large, you don't hear anything bad about him because he gave people an opportunity to make money and he did it and let them do it on their own terms pretty much as long as they followed the territorial rules that he set up. He let guys earn. He gave guys the opportunity to to make money for their families and he gave back to the community like you all are talking about. I can't see a downside to any of that you know honestly in in doing some research for this this show one of the only things i found that was even remotely negative was and i guess there was a book that was written 
uh, the, the you know about the dark underbelly of wrestling, where the mm-hmm. author accused Eddie of of having the guys stage like basically they they rigged the, they staged the window. He set it up so he could take the fall for the insurance money, or or to try and get you know basically like like the person who who intentionally slips <laughs> at a Walmart kind of setup. You I know, mean, which they're, of they're course like... that's been that's been a lot. The experts <laughs> thoroughly dis- disputed that. That was it. I mean, some crazy conspiracy is the only bad thing, but. Going back to the good thing about him, something it's come up on the show before, and, and it'll I'm sure it'll come up again, is the mind he had for for the stories. And fl- the, something with Championship Wrestling from Florida that, that we've talked about, Benny, you mentioned the, the Chains promo <laughs> being your favorite, is they had so many unique angles and unique storylines. I mean, Kevin Sullivan, literally the, the, the speaking in tongues devil in an era when the satanic imagery was still taboo and was still, you know, not something you'd see on TV. Oh, look, my, my main heel is a Satanist and he literally is going to talk to talk to the devil in this promo. And I was wondering, cause Benny mentioned it. If you guys, and maybe, you know, just, a, a I, it's kind of a corny question, but really what was your guys favorite angle story, whatever from, from Florida? You want to go first, Javier? Well, I just wanted—I wanted to add to the uh, the Sullivan Army of Darkness. The the they say that he even worked the boys, the, the his his uh, his uh the fellow wrestlers, where they really thought that Sullivan had gone all out in the occult, and he was a. Uh, Remember, Sullivan never used the word devil or nope. Satan worshiper yep. or devil worshiper. He never used it. The magazine started tagging that on him, but he never used those words. He was more, you know, he he knew what he was doing, but he never used those words. The in terms of angles, I I love the Army of Darkness. I just love that, and uh, the fact that you had Barry Windham and Dusty Rose and Blackjack Mulligan and all those people trying to take him down. And this, the Army of Darkness wasn't just like a couple of months. This went out. This was years and years. He would leave the territory with it with his with his minions and then come back and leave. It wasn't it wasn't he wasn't there for like uh, ten years, but he would come ba- he would go back and forth. I mean that's that would be my pick for for best. But remember, I uh I watched Florida uh, Championship Wrestling for Florida at the tail end last couple of years, and then I started watching the the, the archives. I started watching '85, so. I also the Army of Darkness stuff was great. I like the stuff that the assassin did with uh Dusty Rhodes. Ah. That feud was really good. El I mean, Santo. Oh, uh, the well, yeah, the uh, Jody Hamilton. The assassin. Yeah, when he but but he showed yeah, up yeah. like saying that he was El Santo with yeah, a yeah, plaque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I pad Dusty paralyzed and stuff. Uh Gary Hart pack song against Dusty, obviously one of the famous angles for Dusty turned babyface. Yeah. I was watching some video earlier. And it was from, uh, I think it was 84. And the one, Dusty turned the one-man gang babyface. The one-man gang was with the Army of Darkness and those guys at that time. Dusty Rhodes had latched a figure four on him. And we're talking about, it's just, it seems out there even as you say it, but it was to watch it. They made it so realistic. The Army of Darkness turned on the one-man gang because he wasn't man enough to beat Dusty Rhodes. And they threw him out. The one-man game walked down the hallway and all his shit was in the aisle. 
and all his clothes and everything. He was beating on the on the door to let him in the locker room, and he walked away disheveled and made the whole baby face turn. It was just the storytelling and everything that we go back to that draws to this. You know what I mean? To to the area. It just it was great. You know what I mean? There are just so many so many great things, but those stick out in my head mostly. If you want to see something where you doubt if it's a work, uh, go go uh, dig out when uh, Luna was Sean was like a, a reporter in, in when she was start we started she started wrestling in the, in Florida and she was like a reporter and I guess she wanted to I'm not sure if she wanted to join the Army of Darkness but the point is Kevin Sullivan hit her so hard that I'm surprised she got up but it, it is Luna was Sean right right but the the story is when they got to the back well when they planned it out some people say that Sullivan told Luna what was going to happen, and, and she said, well, bring it, but I'm going to, I got to really bring it to make it believable. Well, you better bring it, because if you don't bring it on camera, you're going to, you're going to get yours on back here. So Sullivan had to, had to really hit her, hit her with the, uh, with conviction. But if you I see it, if you lay it in, if, lay it if, in, I can yeah, hear if you, it. See, mm-hmm. if you see the tape, you just see him hit her so bad. Uh, it's one of those things where you you we want to call the cops like wow that was uh, really bad, mm-hmm. but uh, that's that's what the territories and, and in this case Florida a lot of a lot of the realism and the grittiness and the where they where your your gut instinct says you know this is the what they call fake this is a work this is a show but then all of a sudden you would see things like that oh no but that was real so that that's why people love the love these uh the, the territories and one thing to remember is to remember each territory was its own little world unless you were a big fan of the magazines the champion in florida that was your champion you yeah. didn't know what was happening over in california with ray stevens you know you didn't know what was happening in in, in texas until they became world class and they were all over the place but you didn't know what ha- was happening in, in in virginia for example every state was its own little bubble and that's how they presented it. That's your world champion. Those are your tag team champions. Especially uh, pre-cable. Especially yeah. before WWF was was there for everyone. These were the these were the, the these these were not regional champions. These were the, the people's world champions. That's how they were presented. They know? held kayfabe so so close to you. You remember the story Dustin Reynolds tells, Dustin Rhodes tells of his dad having the the broken leg and wore the cast around the house thinking the kid would didn't take it off till he thought the kids were in bed you know what i mean and it was like dustin's coming of age to kayfabe whenever he caught his dad without the cast on he really thought his own dad's leg was broken you know so, kayfabe in your own family right yeah and i guess you live the gimmick you know that's, and that's one of the reasons they were so over down there and, and they, de- everybody thought it was real yeah and that's a dedication you don't see at all today anymore especially with social media I will give credit, though, a couple, what was it, about two years ago, maybe, um, before he became an announcer, Pat McAfee was involved in some physical wrestling on NXT, and following the pay-per-view match, back before NXT was gutted and destroyed, but following the pay-per-view match, he hosted his Pat McAfee show the next day, still wearing the neck brace, like whenever he was on camera, he sold it, which I thought was, I give him credit for that, that was clearly a, a lifetime fan playing the part yeah, but but I'm curious. You you hit hit something. I want you guys to expand on where you you mentioned the territory local. 
you know, the, the, the Florida being what it was, do you think some of what Florida did, the darker imagery, the bare knuckle title, do you think some of that would have worked if the Von Erics were the ones fighting in Texas, fighting the devil worshiper, or if Vern Gagne was having to put an alliance together to go after the, 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 you know, the evil Satan people and, and Vern Gagne is fighting for the bare knuckle title at Minnesota. Do you think it was the Florida crowd and the people that worked, or was that something that maybe you mentioned California? Would it, would it have worked out there? Well, it was something like, even though the people didn't know what the other promoters was doing, the promoters knew what the other promoters was doing. Some of the guys were traveling around, the bigger stars, the big marquee main event guys were traveling, doing different territories around the country. And I'm sure they were hearing what everybody else was doing. Plus, each market, you're talking about Florida, you're talking about the Southern religious, you know what I mean? Like what works in Florida kind of works in Georgia, but it's not going to work in Texas because it's not going to play there. It's definitely not going to work in New York. You know, so like every part of the you you took advantage of your niche and you played it to it to its fullest. And these guys that had successful territories, your Watts, your Graham, you know what I mean? Guys like that, they they did that, you know, to the fullest and made bank. I would speaking of uh, so. I don't think any discussion, we mentioned him before, of Florida wrestling can be had without Gordon Sully. And Javier used the the image of, you know, the black ant and the red ant, you know, and it, he could do a running commentary on it. I always use the example, growing up in New York on Christmas Eve, we had something called a Yule log. So for, <laughs> I think, about eight hours, you, you watch this log burn. just And, you know, just it, it was a repeating loop. And I always said that Gordon Sully could have done commentary on that Yule log, and I would have been sitting there listening to him. So I guess my question is, what? Well, I guess another comment. I, to my opinion, he, he just made everything so real. I remember his interviews. He did a sit down or a couple of sit downs with Harley Race, and was reviewing his, you know, his championship win or you know, his recent championship loss, and it was such a heart to heart interview, and it sounded a hundred percent real, and you really got totally emotionally invested. Um, was he the right man for the job there in Florida? I mean, we always talk about Lance Russell. I, I think Lance Russell belonged in Memphis and Gordon Soley belonged in Florida. I, I think Soley might have worked, probably would have worked in other states, but definitely Lance Russell, he was he was where he had he needed to be. He was a perfect guy for for that territory. I mean, I, I can't I can't imagine anyone else doing Lance Russell, but but Lance Russell, and but Soli, uh, he was great in Florida. I think someone else could have done Florida, but but not as not as good as uh, as Soli. You know, that that's my take on it. Soli wasn't, in my opinion, anyway. Soli didn't just he could have done any sport, right? He had the Southeast. Soli was the voice of legitimized wrestling throughout the Southeast. He was Georgia Championship Wrestling, Championship Wrestling from Florida, Continental Championship Wrestling, all these different places. He was the voice that two generations of, like, my, the one, my generation and my, my uncle's generation grew up listening to the voice of Gordon Soli if you were in that area of the country. And if you didn't hear that, it was almost like it was less, it seems to me. You know what exactly. I mean? Like. People sought him out. You didn't see guys in other territories of the country 
leaving and doing all the other local promotions around them as well. You know what I mean? Like they called him the Dean for a reason. He was, yeah. he was the voice of that whole section of the country. Yeah. It's like, you need a, we need a commentator. So serious though. I mean, so somber. Well, you, well, it was more like, it was more like maybe not somber, but it was like, listen, this is not a joke. The, the way I look at it, the, the, the in-ring action could be, maybe mediocre to poor but if he's narrating it i it gets my attention for some reason i don't know because maybe the way he speaks and it's kind of he's not he's not trying to overhype anything you watch re- most of the wrestling now and they're trying to uh, that, that that the body slam they're trying to sell everything like it's the best thing ever and Soli would just narrate things with his and with his own little color and and personality but like jim said when when you had a promotion, you know, like in Continental and in Georgia, all of a sudden we need a, a a commentator. We need Soli. And when you would see Gordon Soli right there, your product went up uh, an, another level because that oh that guy oh he's there. So just like that, you you go up an, another notch. So he he added a uh, he's like a brand. He was a well, brand before commentators were considered brands, I guess. You know, was a Michael Buffer before there was a Michael Buffer, maybe. Well, he he added, like you said, Javier. He added that air of legitimacy. If I may, being a Raiders fan, you might appreciate this. If you guys remember watching the prime when, when when football really started shifting to prime time, when you, if you saw like you turn the game on and it's, it's it was Madden and Summerall, you knew that was the big game of the week. You know, it, it, there there might be two or three primetime games coming up, but that was the game that you had to watch. That just hearing Madden's voice, and then with with Monday Night Football, you know, Cosell and all them. You when you heard the commentary, you knew it made that game that much more important. It could have been, you know, a couple of nobody teams like I don't know the Raiders playing the Broncos or something like that, and Whoa. you could have had. <laughs> I'm, all right, I'm Dan. Kidding, I'm kidding. This is the your, this the is Dan and, this is the Dan and Benny today. show, but I don't have to take this. I do not have. To. <laughs> no, we're in the. I, I, I mean, I kid, of course, I kid, of course. <laughs> but you guys, you guys could have had. You, you hear that voice, and you just knew what you were watching was the real thing. And yeah, prime time. And I think something that that Sully doesn't get enough credit for is the real commentary, and I mean that in the sense of. It was a work. We we all know as, as wrestling fans what was happening. It never – you listened to – I mean, Benny, when we used to talk before we, we swore off WWE, how many shows did we do where we talked about how terrible Michael Cole is? And you listen to him talk, and it just sounds like he's selling a script. He's clearly – here's your talking points. This is bogus. Like you said, Javier, the biggest – the body slam is the biggest thing I've seen in my whole life. It every it sounded like a real sports competition, plain and simple. Yeah, don't yeah, don't don't force feed me what I know what I'm watching. I know what I'm watching something that's really not that interesting and, and that was not that spectacular. Don't force feed me and try to cue me on when I'm supposed to be excited. Let solely would let the action in the ring or whatever he was talking about play out. And he would present it as serious as possible, but yet entertaining. That's how that's the only way I could explain it. He reminds me of like NFL films. I watch NFL. I can watch NFL films for hours and the the narrator just talking and talking. And it's just so classic. Soli was classic when he was alive and he's like vintage now. He's just Mm -hmm. great, great commentator, man. 
Well, that was his little section of the kayfabe. You had to, if the fans, the fans knew that Soli was the real deal. So if Soli is believing what's going on in the ring, my God, they're killing this guy. Look at what they're doing. And Soli, he's a little bit Jim Ross, uh, a little bit, ah, uh, uh, fuck. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle with the eloquence of the speaking. You know what I mean? But he's got the excitement in his voice. Everybody calls him deadpan. I think he's underrated for the, the excitement that he made you feel. But he believed what was going on, which made you believe what was going on. So he it made everything else. Emotionally it, invested it, it took it did. to that exactly. next level. Yeah, you made you were emotionally invested. Yes. And you talk about things that made it feel real. Something that, that Championship Wrestling from Florida was really good at compared to, Javier, you mentioned the modern product, is you watch wrestling today and you have guys that are 10, 12, 14 time champions because every, I mean, every week it seems like at least once a month, some title is changing hands. Um, I don't, I don't know when the last, what the count is now, but I remember catching a highlight from the WWE and they referred to our truth as a 75 time champion with that, that 24 seven belt that it's like every few minutes, there's a new one. Um, where Florida had just this lineage, the the Florida Heavyweight Championship. I mean, Benny, you mentioned it before we started recording. Goes back to the days of like Strangler Lewis, and you look at the people that were the NWA Florida Heavyweight Champion. It was pretty much Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer guys that held the title for good runs that mattered. And I was hoping you guys could kind of expand on that thought of part of the, the appeal Florida had, and even like you mentioned, the bare knuckle and Jim, you, you talked in the article I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you talked about the importance of their tag team division. They had a phenomenal secondary titles that meant something to the fans too. And I was hoping you guys could kind of expand on that, of the importance of Florida had of elevating titles and making the belt, and I'll, I'll use that word, belt means something. I did a little research today on the championship, so I'll I'll run with this if that's all right. Um, the Florida heavyweight title, the main marquee title for the territory, started in 1934 and ran until 2014, and it was the main drawing title in that territory. And everybody, as you say, that was anybody that came through that territory that drew money and like guys multiple times, obviously held that belt. They had that title. And then it was deactivated when uh, the Crockett's bought the territory. So it, it went from 1934 all the way up until the time when the Crockett's bought it. And then that was uh, the Southern heavyweight title. And then uh, you had the brass knuckle title from 1960 to 1984, which was abandoned again around the same time when the Crockett's took over. And then uh, Ray Stevens was your first Florida TV champion. So you had all these guys that were drawn and they had so much talent coming into the territory. They had to create these lesser titles so they could have stuff like we said earlier going all over that state. And it was just it was so like so many great statistics. You know, I'm not much of a, a statistics guy, you know what I mean? But I was looking into it. It was just you saw all these names like you saying, it was just like it made your jaw drop to see all the different people that held that. You know what I mean? The the Southern Heavyweight Championship like one of the main titles. Eddie Graham was the first one to have that title and held it three times. And the title was vacated on eight different occasions. 
you know what I mean? Mostly by heels that did underhanded actions or, and different things to get the guys over and build the attendance from one show to the next. But Kevin Sullivan, we're talking four times over, held that title. Dick Slater, five times over. The Zodiac, who was Bob Orton Sr., held that title six times. But Dusty Rhodes held that title ten times, the Southern Heavyweight Championship. So there was a lot of gold that changed hands through a lot of big names, and they used it to facilitate their storylines. And in those days, the, the title didn't make the man. The man made the title. And that's why they switched it off, you know what I mean, between the different big titles to these guys. And the tag team championships is just a storied a list, but I won't bore you with all that stuff. But it was like, like I say, nowadays, they use these belts to elevate lesser men. Back then, they had enough great talent that they wanted to put those titles on the drawers. It's interesting how they, uh, they called it the Southern heavyweight title, where – or when when you're a young kid and you hear Southern Heavyweight Title, you'll think, oh wow! So they 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 uh, this title you, you, this could be in Georgia, this could be in Tennessee, South Carolina, Florida. So it's a you think more bigger bigger than just Florida with the name like Southern Heavyweight Title. So I always found that interesting, and the 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 the, the title holders in Florida. Even when I was uh, watching it as a kid, they just didn't feel uh, small time. They felt like legit. Uh, quality wrestlers that held these titles because remember Eddie Graham uh he stressed wrestling in his in his in his in his promotion in his territory he wanted people who could actually wrestle it wasn't a punch and kick territory so you would see people with skills and like oh that's why he's a champion because this was back in kayfabe well you have to be a good wrestler and that's why he's a champion see so it would be in that way it would be more convincing because you could you could actually see that he was he was good wrestler good champion you know he was skilled you know did they use the the florida southern heavyweight title the same way they did in memphis usually in memphis whoever won it was usually either uh jerry lawler or bill dundee all that meant was the next time that harley race or flair whoever was in town they were going to get the title shot was it kind of the same thing with the florida title yeah it was a stepping stone you had like you illustrated that perfectly that you had flair and race and these guys that were the national champion and they went all over and that's why you had to have these heavyweight titles for each territory so you could have a top guy there and then every once in a while you would have the big blowout draw where flair race whoever comes into the territory and then they would go at it i watched a great match earlier today doing uh, research for this stuff that was Pat O'Connor versus Ric Flair, the past champion versus the present champion. Wow. It was amazing. 1981. It was great stuff. And uh, yeah, so it was just one of the ways that they could elevate themselves under the NWA umbrella and still be able to do their own thing, you know? Do you think that, so say, let's do a little fantasy here. Suppose, you know, Vince McMahon was not, Vince McMahon, and he was just a little bit less ambitious, and he was perfectly content to keep the WWF in in the Northeast. Uh, do you think the Florida Territory still would have been going today? You know, under that scenario, could it have could it have stayed as a going concern as a, as a local regional territory? To to me, it's it's to me, it's obviously never going to be the same. And, and, and that's the way things go in, in, in life and, and, and pretty much in everything. 
But if you look at how wrestling is now, and I and I still call it wrestling. I'm not. I was I was reading a little bit, refreshing my memory on 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 Eddie Graham, and I and I go to the WWE site, and his biography says something like, uh, "Cowboy Latrell helped uh, Eddie Graham in his sports entertainment career and his sports entertainment path." Oh my God, I got so nauseous. I mean, these how can you just start switching things up like that with the words and a, but. What, what I'm trying to say history, is, yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of lot of small promotions, a lot of companies in every state. Unfortunately, they come and go, and that's the, that's the way it's always been. In a way, the territories are still there, but in a way, they're not because a lot of these wrestlers kind of wrestle the same. They're they're little. A, a lot of them are a little indistinguishable from one one another and i'm not and i'm not trying to put anyone down because if i if someone body slams me on the mat i'll probably i would probably never get up with my back problems but as a fan and as a, as a viewer who who was able to see some of the territories i can there's a lot of wrestling out there but it's hard to see hard to determine what you should really invest time in but the way Benny described when he used to watch, you know, the the the, the tri WF product and and you know in Florida and and when I used to watch Florida and and the WWF, it was must see TV. You know, Crockett. It was really something that you had to make time to watch. You had to watch it. You couldn't miss it. Now we're a little spoiled with on demand and all these uh, streaming services, which is great, but it it's a little different how people consume wrestling nowadays. Back to your question. The territories would not have survived just because with cable and technology and the way things are and and people's mentality and most importantly, kayfabe, the fact that kayfabe is not really uh, a factor in, in most wrestling product nowadays. It's it's not. Let's uh, let's do the whole cinema drop it in Kate. Let's go right. Let's Vince McMahon never left New York. He stayed there. Put up the John Carpenter wall, leaving behind it, right? <laughs> so everybody else would have survived for a while, these little fiefdoms. But Vince McMahon still would have been behind that wall, like doing his thing and building and building and building and building. I think that they were until the advent of pay-per-view. Once you get to the advent of pay-per-view, even if Vince McMahon hadn't have went to Georgia, if none of that had ever happened, if he hadn't have presented these greedy little guys that ran these nwa companies the money because let's be honest everybody wants to villainize vince mcmahon but he just held the money out there those are the guys that took it uh i think that with the advent of pay-per-view that's whenever you would have seen the fall of the territories because cwf probably would have maintained watts probably would have maintained Vern maybe Vern couldn't really keep up with the times as it was anyway but I don't think with with as as everything technologically advances, I don't think the territorial system could have survived. As Javier said, with the K, with the cafe would have died, and and all that would have happened. But everybody wants to 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 make Vince McMahon out the villain or say that he's lucky. Man, luck is just when being prepared meets opportunity, right? But I don't believe in luck. If you're if you're prepared and an opportunity presents itself, you take advantage of it and you make something out of it. Ms. McMahon did that. He had capital to play with. And when he dangled the gold nugget underneath all these guys' nose, they took it, you know? 
remember CWF fell from within because uh, when Eddie Graham died, Hiro Matsuda, Mike Graham, and, and Duke Kiyomuka, to a to an extent, they were running the uh, the territory. But they were already getting poached by by uh, Crockett. Crockett was mm-hmm. using Florida as a as a as a farm system for his product, and he would start getting the better when Florida was making the the stars, and Crockett was just plucking them. Burnett and, and, and it was either and it was either that or uh, they were going leaving for the WWF. So Florida collapsed on its own and because of of, of WWF, and it all went around money and greed. In, in Crockett's case, he wanted you know, and that's and that's and that's not a not a pretty picture, but that's what happened. Unfortunately, closed like- in uh, eighty eight, I believe eighty seven when Crockett bought what was left of Florida, but quickly dissolved it in 87 88 i believe mm-hmm. yeah 87. that was it well gentlemen this is always fun to, to have these kind of conversations and florida just deserves so much of the credit for a lot of the popularity i'm going to end on a final i guess kind of a final thought final question when <clears throat> excuse me after absolving the contracts with like with ohio and some of the other areas the WWE relaunched, well, in coordination with a pre-existing Florida Championship Wrestling, relaunched what would become the Florida Territory as their initial developmental. Of obviously, what was Florida Championship Wrestling evolved into what would become NXT. I'm wondering, do you guys think that the history of Florida, the fan base, because if you watch the old Florida Championship tapes with uh, your Tyler Black and some of these guys, when it first started, the crowd was older. You watch NXT now, and it's it's a younger college-age crowd. You watch early FCW tapings, and people in the crowd are in their are, are, our age. They're, you got guys in their 40s and, and older, and maybe the occasional the occasional uh, guy, or, uh, older, um, how's the word go, Benny? What were they, what were they called? The uh, the The women in the front row always swinging their umbrellas at, at Cornette and all the, uh, the bag lady at pin, at Mary. Mary. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> it. of the ring. <laughs> you know, you, you had, you had that, that older crowd. And I'm wondering, do you think it was the connection to the WWE offices down there? What would become the, the, the NXT arena and developmental and all, or do you think they chose Florida because of the history and they had the built-in fan base and they were ready to go? Well, remember one of the head guys when it started was Steve Kern, right? Of the Fantastics. Yes. So I I think they were trying to to build on the roots that Florida already had and, and, and the great wrestling tradition. And, and I, I guess Hatpin Mary was ready to wallop the, the heel when he would be passing by the railing. But they, they probably said, whoa, whoa, lady, remember, this is a show, remember, and just killed, killed her momentum right there. It just... <laughs> I think at first, like you said, like like you mentioned, like you painted the picture, it was they tried wanted to do a new version of the uh, championship wrestling from Florida, but they quickly turned it into a, uh, you know, a, a WWE sports entertainment product. You know, if, if how, how, that's that's the best way I would describe it, right? And then NXT, which is for years was it was an excellent product, mm-hmm. and now it's uh, kind of up in the air what what what's going to happen there with. Uh, well, I I think the. Uh... 
We're recording this on a Tuesday, the final nail just this morning, the or I guess earlier afternoon, the news broke that Bruce Pritchard is taking over creative from the that all all NXT employees are to report directly to him. So with with the uh, recent layoffs of, of William Regal and Road Dog and those guys and now Pritchard taking over Triple H's NXT is gone. Yeah. Remember, they're trying to use that uh, the thing from where they get college students, right? And they give them yeah, the, a, the, a chance the to. Next, uh, what, what do they call uh, that? The, the the next big thing program or something like, like that? Like who's up or something? Uh, yeah, who's next or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, who's next, yeah. And it's it's all they got, track they athletes got, and basketball players. Yeah, and, they got track athletes, basketball players, a couple of cheerleaders on there. They got uh, no wrestlers. Yeah. But uh, the first, the first product, one of their earliest product is a uh, uh, Scott Steiner's. No, not not Rick Steiner's uh, son, right? Yeah, who's the current so NXT a- champion? Yep. Well, I mean, they, I, you know, love him or hate him, uh, that was what they did with Baron Corbin. He was a green as green as grass, and they liked his look and took took a non wrestler and turned him into a wrestler. But I guess we'll That's see. The sports Entertainment Combine. The yeah. Rest- the, the Territory Wrestling School is gone. All that is gone, and any link to that is going to be gone. Now you don't have to know anything about the business to get over in the business. They'll teach you everything you need to know and everything they want you to know. Use you up and spit you out. Yep. Remember, a lot of a lot of uh, y- youngsters – well, I'm not a youngster, so I, ca- I can call them youngsters now. <laughs> a lot of them get into wrestling – as far as I can tell, a lot of them get into wrestling not to be wrestlers. They get there, they go in as a platform for something else. Mm-hmm. So they see it as a stepping stone for something else. Not necessarily. Hey, I've always wanted to be a a pro wrestler. You know, the gone the 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 closest we have are people who grew up on maybe Matt Hardy, you know, and 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 that generation. But the kids right now, they see they see wrestling as a as a not all of them, of course, but a lot of them see wrestling as a pure entertainment platform onto something else. Yeah, I think but, my... uh, a lot of a lot of kids are seeking out the real the old school stuff, which is amazing. I love that. Amazing. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I no, think no. You're, you're right. My age group, late, late 30s, early 40s is about the last group that grew up because I still had NWA and, and early, you know, I could watch the territory tapes and I, I saw all that growing up. Uh, it's still real to me, damn it, for quite a while. Um, actually, <laughs> you know, as we as we wrap up, you talk about Jim. You mentioned you know you don't need to be in wrestling. You remember the story from a few months ago, or maybe maybe longer now. But that that uh, lady who was hired as a writer, and she mm-hmm. posted that thing on her social media that she yeah. asked. Yeah, she she asked them. She's like, what 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 should I research? Because I don't know anything about wrestling, and they told her not to worry about it. I said, yeah, you don't need to know wrestling to be a writer for this show. Like she, she didn't know who the champions were. She didn't know anything about the product. She was a, a writer for like sitcoms and soap operas and stuff. And mm-hmm. they're like that. You, you don't need to know wrestling. Don't, don't even waste your time. And you know, so whatever. But as we wrap up, guys, uh, Benny, Javier, Jim, any closing thoughts? Do your research into history. Get on YouTube. Get on the network. Use whatever abilities that you've got to look this stuff up. Here at Pro Wrestling Stories, I did a series on the territories. Javier's got tons of great pieces. Both of you guys, we've all got stuff on there that's about the business. Any way that you can educate yourself on the business is a good thing because it's slipping away. And the more we can keep it alive, the better off we're going to be. And the better off the business is going to be. 
and and the the history of professional wrestling is so rich uh, with stories, and not only the stories of what happened in the ring, but the stories of what happened, you know, behind the scenes, even just the the road trips and the camaraderie of these guys and the genuine love they had for each other, and that's all going to be lost. So we really, you know, like Jim said, you know, check this stuff out. It's real wrestling. Do we have uh, time for a, do we have time for a rib story from the, from Florida real quick? I can make it a quick one. Yeah, go for it. It's probably pretty famous. The the Funks and the Briscoes were riding side by side in a car. Rick Martell was cutting into the territory riding with the Briscoes and they were giving each other hell going down the road, raising hell this and that. And the one of the boys in the Funk car was mooning the Briscoes and all that stuff. So the Briscoes somehow convinced Rick Martell to get naked and get in the trunk of the car. And they told him that they were going to come to the stop sign and slam on the brakes and honk the horn. And he was supposed to have the hood held by his hand. He was supposed to jump out of the car and moon him and then get back in the car. They were going to take off. Well, everybody was in on it. And what had happened was the Briscoes had backed up to like a Perkins or the big glass windows of a restaurant, slammed on the brakes, hit the horn. Rick Martell jumps out to moon who he thought was the folks and everybody else. And it shows his ass to this whole restaurant. Meanwhile, the Briscoes hit gas and take off. And then Rick Martell's cutting across the parking lot trying to catch back up. You know what I mean? This was this was the days of the territories. This was the stuff that sometimes you don't hear about. You know what I mean? But that's what made it so great, you know? See, there's your there's your next podcast. Jim Phillips, Pro Wrestling Stories from the Territories. See, it even rhymes. Both stories and ribs. <laughs> stories from the Territories, absolutely. Well, Jim, Javier, thank you guys for being here. Uh, Both of you, Jim Phillips, Javier Hoist, Benny Scala, uh, all on ProWrestlingStories.com. Plenty, obviously, Javier, you mentioned over 90 articles, some great stuff in there. Jim, your bit on the territories was phenomenal. Javier, you did an article about a year or so ago on uh, wrestling collectibles and toys. You're still on the toys? Still my, my favorite piece. Read my, read my other stuff, man. Well, you, I, I'm just you, I'm you, complimenting you, it. It's I have you got read a br- other got stuff. But Dan 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 likes reading the about the the wrestling toys. He's read it 25 times now. The wrestling <laughs> LJN toys. I you know it, it's it's my favorite article you've written. I think about it. And now, I, and, I'm, and I'm 30. And I, and I'm 38 I, years old. Star Wars is still my favorite movie. It doesn't mean I don't like anything else I've seen since and, then. And and I and I thank you, Dan, for reading my 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 article on LJN uh, WWF figures. Print him off a hard copy and sign it and send it to him. I I, I would <laughs> print it out. Print it out and sign it. Look at you guys can't see it since it's an audio podcast, but look behind me. I mean, my backdrop is literally just filled with that stuff. You can you blame me for it being the most my favorite. Is that about two credit cards back there maxed out and all that? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are terrible. But again, th- thank you guys. Jim Phillips, Javier Oist, Benny Scalum. And Scalab. I encourage everyone listening, please research about the old stuff. I'm not saying to watch, don't watch the new stuff. Read, the, read about the old stuff. Check out Pro Wrestling Stories. Check out uh, friend of the show, uh, Scott Teal's website, Crowbar Press. Amazing stuff on there. Just read about the history of where wrestling came from, and you'll appreciate where, it's now, where it is now, and you'll, you'll understand it, and, and you'll you just understand it more. You'll appreciate it more. Amen. I will Absolutely. say John Cosper. John Cosper as well. Eat, sleep, True. Yeah, and for, for those of you that can look up 
Dan and Benny in the ring on Facebook. Benny, to be at, towards the uh, end of the year, into this year, did an expose every posted all the guests we had last year and their books. There's so many good resources out there, books, journals, websites, articles. Like you said, the history is there. Go find it. I even, even the, the, what was the WWE network on Peacock has plenty of the old territory tapes and you can catch a lot of good stuff. There's still a lot of good stuff on YouTube. You got to go out and find it because I do live in Florida. I live about 20 minutes from Tampa. So uh, I would like to say so long from the Sunshine State. For the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we are in the ring. Good night, folks.